the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. For those of you who don't know about the show, it's in two parts, not necessarily equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, last week, we talked about younger couples, and a lot of times, younger couples don't do the proper estate planning, and we spent a little bit of time why younger couples should have a will, and believe me, everybody should should have a will. But Beth came up with another question, so maybe we'll address that Well, now. here's the other thing. Why is a power of attorney important? Why a healthcare proxy when you're young? You know, why do you need to do these things as well as the will? I'm young, I'm healthy, you know, what's the problem? Yeah, one of the reasons you may want to do a power of attorney, let's say you're married, husband and wife, husband's in an accident. There's no automatic right in New York to sign each other's name. So let's say for the sake of argument, we, we have a, a husband, he's in a car accident. He's not mentally competent because of the car accident. He has brain injuries, whatever. Wife wants to sell the house. The mortgage is too much for her with because her husband's not making an income anymore. Well, you know what? She can't sell the house, assuming both names are on the deed. She can't sell the house without a court order unless she has a power of attorney. I can give you a hundred stories of the same type of example. Maybe she wants to access his 401k to make some payments. Maybe she wants to pay some medical bills. She wants to access his 401k. 401k plans are not joint. She doesn't, She can't get access to the 401k IRA money unless she has written authorization. That written authorization is a power of attorney. It's a very important document. Now, don't get me wrong. If you, if you sign a power of attorney and you give it to a wrong person, let's say a young couple has it and you give a power of attorney to the wrong person that's ready to divorce, that can be very bad consequences. So I'm not saying it's a, it's a blanket rule. Everybody should sign a power of attorney. But if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, then I would strongly recommend you think about a power of attorney. And you can put a restriction in there. Let's say you're a younger couple. You're afraid of eh, maybe what could happen in the future. Maybe what you say is the power of attorney can't be used unless a medical doctor certifies that I'm not mentally, I do not have mental capacity to handle my own business affairs. And it can't be used unless that medical doctor or two medical doctors or whatever you want certifies that in writing. It's not always as easy as you want to get that letter. But, you know, if you want that restriction, you want that protection, then it's a good idea. Because I can't tell you if, let's say, a husband has a premature stroke, a wife is in a car accident accident and you need to do some planning, you need to get some assets switched over for whatever reason, you need to pay some bills, you may not be able to do it unless you have a power of attorney. The alternative, if you don't have a power of attorney, is going to court. If you go to court every 
single decision you make is going to be reviewed and monitored by the court. And first of all, speed is taken away. You can't do things quickly and everything is subject to court approval. That's not necessarily what you want to do. The idea of estate planning and elder law is to keep people out of court. Now, a lot of times our point in keeping people out of court is avoiding probate. But at the same time, we want to avoid the guardianship court if we need to. It's not an efficient way to manage your assets. So if, if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, just in case something happens to you and vice versa, then I strongly recommend that you consider a PAV attorney. If you want, you can put in the PAV attorney. It can't be used unless a medical doctor, psychiatrist, whatever, certifies that you're not able to handle your financial decisions. And if you want to hear more about Connors & Sullivan, get on our website at connorsandsullivan.com. Now, we're going to have two guests on this week. Dick Morris, who was campaign manager for the Clintons in Arkansas into their White House years, and he managed all their scandals and everything else and got them through it. And then a, a personal friend of ours, Paul Weiss, who was in Vietnam. He was a young lieutenant in Vietnam. I guess you can't have be an old lieutenant in Vietnam, but a young lieutenant in Vietnam. And he's going to talk a little bit about his experiences. First, uh, we'll take a short break, and then we'll hear from Paul Weiss. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718 718-238- or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Adult stem cell research is nothing new. It has been going on for decades and, in fact, has proven helpful in treating various diseases. In the process of this research, nobody has to be killed in order to obtain the stem cells. Embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, only began in 1998 and does involve killing a new human life in order to obtain the cells. The number of diseases that have been successfully treated with embryonic stem cells is zero. They have shown no medical benefit. 
And even if they did, such activity is immoral. The end does not justify the means. Adult stem cells have treated various forms of leukemia, sickle cell disease, anemia, and carcinoma. Embryonic stem cells have succeeded in nothing. This is Father Frank Lavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is a previous guest who's been on the show before, Paul Weiss. He's a former president of the Civil War Roundtable, and we talked about the Civil War on a number of occasions. But today we're going to do a little something different. We're going to be talking about Paul's personal experiences in Vietnam. How are you doing today, Paul? Real fine, as long as the weather holds up, yes. <laughs> okay, well, all right. So let's go back. You graduate from college. What happens? Well, I was in the University of Pittsburgh from 64 to 68. And back then there was a draft. So when I went to college, I knew I wanted to go into ROTC. I picked a school with ROTC because I figured you were going in. I would go in as an officer. And that was in 1964. Then in 1965, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident and Johnson started sending troops to Vietnam. So there was a lot more pressure on uh, on the draft and everything that. In fact, our, our uh, ROTC unit at Pitt, it had a, when I joined in 64, it had a battalion, uh, maybe 200 people. And in, by 66, it was tripled in size, three battalions. We had a brigade because of all the people who want to, in fact, avoid the draft and go through ROTC. So it was a, it was a big change there. And when I graduated in 68, you get, when you get your diploma, you get your commission as a second lieutenant. And uh, I was commissioned in the infantry. And a few months after that, I got my orders to go on active duty. And I went down to the infantry school at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. That was the end of 1968. What was infantry I, school like back then? I'm just curious. Uh, IOBC, the Infantry Officer Basic Course. Uh, we had infantry officers and we also had military in- intelligence officers who went through the same course. And they were from schools all over the country. And, that, and I had a few, and a few uh, West Point cadets who had gone to graduate school, so they didn't go into the service with their, with their classes. It was tough, but it was, um, you know, it was worthwhile. They they kept us pretty busy uh, for uh, for about uh, 10, 10, 12 weeks. And they tried to cover an awful lot of material during that time. And then, in fact, I remember when we first went, uh, we first got uh, Infantry Hall, which is a beautiful facility, much better than almost any college I've ever been in. And uh, we big auditorium there, and we were greeted by uh, the, the post commandant. He had been a prisoner of the Japanese during World War II, and he was a very soft-spoken man, unusual for most generals. And he said, he says, the only advice I can give you is that uh, you cooperate with each other. He says, we survived the prisoner of war camps by cooperating. And that was, I always remember that. But they uh, told us, says, probably the question on your mind is uh, if you're going to Vietnam. He says, there's no question, you are going to Vietnam. So that was for all of us from active duty. We had some National Guard officers who weren't going, obviously. It was very impressive instructors and a very impressive facility at Fort Benning. I was, it was much better, actually, that the, the instruction on whole was much, uh, was much better than the instruction I'd gotten in college, although the subjects was different, of course. You graduate, and then what happens? Well, I got assigned to the infantry school as an instructor for a few months. I was an assistant instructor. Well, we had uh, two or three-day tactical problems. In fact, I still remember I was on the uh, Special Operations Subcommittee of the Platoon Tactics Committee of the Company Operations Department, United States Army Infantry School, Fort Benning, Georgia, 31905. Uh, that sticks in my mind. <laughs> and what we did, we went on two or three-day two or three day tactical problems. And as an assistant instructor, the, the regular instructor would give them the classes and the instructions. 
and I would go out with one of the platoons and act as their advisor, depending on what kind of platoon it was. We had uh, three different types of um, instructors. We had IOBC platoons like I was, ROTC lieutenants. We had OCS platoons that were enlisted men becoming officers. And we had, they had a new program there, uh, instant E5s, they called it. We called them uh, whip and chill or shake and bakes. They were, they were private E1s, private E2s who would qualify on a test and they would, uh, after they would go to a nine week course and become E5, Sergeant E5s. So it was a new program because they were short of, uh, of uh, junior grade non-commissioned officers. So for the IOBC and the, and the OCS officers, they would have their student platoon leaders I would be their advisor, and for the and for the uh, uh, the the NCO classes, I would be their platoon leader, going through these two or three day tactical problems. So I learned a lot, but I also didn't learn to duck there because you know I'm an instructor, nothing can happen to me. So there was uh, <laughs> there was a little bit of that. But uh, after that, a few months there, I got my orders for Vietnam and uh, went to uh, a 30 day leave at home, and then I went uh, flew to Seattle and um, Fort Lewis, and we flew out of Seattle SeaTac Airport, and we took the northern route. We went to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, then we went to Yokota Air Force Base in Japan, and then to Vietnam. In Yokota, it was a, it was a huge hangar. There was a PX there, and we were mixing with other flights. We were, obviously, we weren't the only flight there, and they announced the Freedom Bird flight. They called it the Freedom Bird flight. That was the, just the opposite of our flight. We were going to Vietnam. The Freedom Bird flight was returning to the States, so they announced their flight first. And they all yelled and screamed, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what? To load their plane. And those of us in our flight, we'll look at each other. Oh, one more year. <laughs> one more year. So, Well, you're at that so, age. Uh, year's a long time. It is, yes. I was, I was, I was a little older when I went over there because I'd been to college. I was 23. Anyway, we, we flew from Yokota. We went to Cameron Bay, uh, which was a big base. And I thought it was the, Vietnam is, smells very bad as a country. I'm sure it still does because of all the fertilizer they use in the rice paddies. So that was the first, uh, you get assaulted by its these noxious fumes when you land, and it was very warm. And what I noticed was in Cameron Bay, they had guard towers 30 feet off the ground with, with sentries, but the sentries were using unloaded M14s. You could tell if an M14 is loaded because of the magazine. I said, well, this can't be too bad. I mean, they're not, they're not even, they don't even give the guards loaded weapons. So I spent a couple of days in Cameron Bay, and we got assigned uh, units. And I was assigned to the 1st Brigade with the 5th Infantry Division, which was up on the DMZ, the northern end of the country, of South then South Vietnam. So we flew to uh, Da Nang, which is uh, further north, and a C-130. And then uh, from, from Da Nang, I flew in a C-123, which was a smaller plane, two-engine plane, to uh, Quang Tri, where, where my unit was. And Quang, because of possible ground fire, the C-123 went into a, what they call a controlled crash landing, a very steep angle. We, nobody was shooting at us, but just as a, as a precaution. And landed at Quang Tree Airport, and I got out, and I asked one of the uh, Air Force sergeants to go looking for the latrine. And he said, well, sir, the, the piss tube is right around the corner over there. And I go, okay. And it was an artillery tube stuck in the ground at an angle with gravel at the bottom where you urinated in. And out in the open and everything, there was no women around at that time. So well, I'm, I said I'm not in Kansas anymore. So <laughs> that was kind of the first introduction. Uh, I got assigned to uh, the first brigade was uh, of the Fifth Infantry. was a it was a separate brigade, and uh, without going into too much detail, usually an army brigade has maybe 3,544,000 men as part of a division. But we were a separate brigade, so we needed our own support. So we had about 7,500 men. Uh, it was sent there in the northern part of the country because they were gradually withdrawing the Third Marine Division. 
And the 3rd Marine Division, uh, they had three regiments, nine, nine infantry battalions up there. We only had about, um, well, for everything, we had four and a half or so battalions, but we were bigger battalions than the Marine battalions. And we had a, a tank battalion and a mechanized infantry battalion and my battalion, which was what regular infantry, straight leg infantry, we called it. We didn't have our own vehicles. We were just walking kind of infantry. And we, we were the only ones who could be flown into an area because we had less equipment. So we, we were air mobile in, in, effect, in effect. And they used us up in the high ground up there. But they used, we had a big area to cover because I said we were taking over from the 3rd Marine Division. They had been there, oh, let's see, since about from 65 to, uh, they left just after I got there, actually a month or so after I got there. We were still supported by Marine Aviation for a while. And they weren't, I'm not saying they weren't good, they weren't reliable because they had other missions. And while I was there, we got assigned a uh, platoon of the, of, of UEs, of uh, UH-1s from the 101st division which was just south of us on a regular basis so they were much more reliable and again since we were the only unit that could be flown in helicopters we didn't need a whole lot sometimes we needed a whole company but most of the time a one platoon of four helicopters was enough to get us around and we resupply mission the platoon leader i was going to take over for he was he was due to be relocated back in about three weeks so they put me with a recon platoon which was four squads of six men and uh, their, their job was not to make contact with the enemy but to uh, but for reconnaissance and to look for areas where we might be deployed. So I usually the platoon leader didn't go out with them. He would plan the missions. But since I was newbie and gave me some experience, I went out with the with the squads, with the recon squads in the field. And that was okay. It was very educational, except the one time we got hit by a typhoon while we were out there. And we were the only ones out there. I'm sure the NVA were, were snug in their caves and everything. There was a typhoon, and later I found out there was 23 inches of rain in 24 hours. Ooh. I uh, I'd been in rain before, obviously, but I'd never really been in rain before. <laughs> and I still today I compare everything to that. <laughs> I've been in, in storms that were as that was uh, as much rain fell down, but uh, not not constantly like that did for for uh, it was all day and all night. That was that was uh, interesting. My hands were white and wrinkled from like you were in the bath too long. There, there was a, that was quite an experience. And then later I got assigned to my regular platoon. I was a platoon leader with B Company of the 1st Battalion, 11th Infantry. And we were very lucky. Looking back on it, we were very lucky. We were involved with stuff, usually on the periphery. I mean, the main action was, hap- was happening nearby, but not on us. So we were kind of lucky in that way. And it happened several times. So I guess it's a matter of luck. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like one, the, almost the first operation I went on. There was a ridge, maybe uh, five or 600 meters long, and there was NVA at the top of it. And they, I think there was supposed to be about 50 or 60 of them. And I said we had a mech infantry battalion in our in our brigade and a tank battalion. So the, uh, they had one company of the, of the mech infantry. They had armored personnel carriers, M113s, that had mounted machine guns and aluminum armor. It could stop shrapnel and small arms, but uh, anything 50 caliber and above would go through it. But they had them coming up the, the road that went up to the top of the ridge. And my company was deployed on the side of the ridge, the long side of the ridge. And we were coming up through the brush. It was kind of second growth stuff. It was kind of thick in spots, but we could get through it. Anyway, because the tracks, the APCs, we call them, the tracks, they made so much noise. They drew all the fire from the guys on the top of the ridge. So they called in airstrikes. And while we waited at the bottom, uh, F-4 Phantoms came in. And the first one came in and was just firing its cannon. And as he pulled up with his uh, the, bo- the, the, the bottom part of the plane facing the ground, the, the uh, 
a couple of guys from the couple of the NBA started, popped out of their holes and started firing their their AKs at them. So the second the second fan came in, same thing, and the same thing. A couple of guys popped out of the holes, and as soon as he finished shooting, they fired at him. And they must have called something else in. It was a delay, and then the third fan came in and dropped napalm on top of the ridge. And that was uh, it's illegal now, but that's great stuff. <laughs> when you say it's uh, great all, stuff, what is napalm? I mean, I mean, I know, you know, what does gasoline. it do? It's jelly gasoline, and uh, it spreads out, and it'll burn to anything it attaches to anything, um, whether animal, vegetable, or mineral. And it's it's very effective for people who are dug in against. Uh, they they first used it against the Japanese in World War II, and uh, they stopped using it after Vietnam. But it's it's great stuff. And we go up there. We call them. Uh, well, we call them crispy critters because they look like little dried up animal cracker things. Mm-hmm. This is after they, you know, get the hit. Blackened corpses, basically. So that, that we found about a dozen, maybe 15 up there. The rest maybe just fled down the, the other side of the ridge where it was very thick. But the, I'm all for napalm. I mean, that's... <laughs> It keeps all casualties down. Yeah, you know, a lot so, of people uh, may not realize it. I mean, yeah, it sounds like a terrible weapon, but what would you rather do, have American boys killed? Right. I mean, it's the same, it's the same stuff that's like in a flamethrower, the same idea, except it's on a grander scale, and uh, it's very effective. And it, because the planes come in very low, it's um, it's very uh, it's very easy for them to hit the target. So it doesn't it doesn't cause too many. I mean, there's no there's not collateral damage on that, at least out in the out in the woods. I wouldn't want to use it in a city so much, but out in the woods it was, was effective. Anyway, we, we had, and then I'm saying, we, we were kind of involved in situations like that where things were happening, but we didn't get the brunt of it. Uh, there was, uh, we had another instance, we were about five or six, we were spread out, our, our companies were spread out five or six meters apart, five or six uh, hundred meters apart. And our, our other company, I was in B Company, one of our other companies, Charlie Company, started taking, a, uh, they, got, they got hit by, a, by an attack. We had people sneaking around our perimeter, but we never really, we blew off a couple of our Claymore mines, but we didn't have any real real action on our side. But they got hit hard. And what I remember about that is uh, they had the, the C-130, the gunships, that was um, called Spooky. They had 20-millimeter cannons and, uh, and met Gatling guns, and they were circling around Charlie Company. And it was like, a, it was just it was at nighttime, and a stream of blue tracers were going down there, almost like a river from the from the top, from the plane down to the ground, and they uh, broke up that attack pretty, pretty good. But I said we were, we were lucky. We got, we, we, we got a sideline, a good view of it, but we didn't have too much action on our side. And looking back on it, I said it's a good thing. Let me ask you, what was your relationship to your men? Well, it was, it was, it was pretty good. Um, they wanted to know whether you, you were a jerk or not. Uh, the guy I took over for was very good, and they gave me a, you know, they gave me a week or so before they made the judgment on me. When they saw I wasn't a crazy guy who was trying to get them killed for personal glory, then we, everything was copacetic. It was interesting. When I joined the unit, we had a, I won't mention his name, he was a little bit of an oddball as a company commander. And I didn't know anything, so you know, I was just doing what, what, he, what he told me to do. We were walking up and down, the, we were up on the DMZ with where the, where the old uh, the dividing line between North and South Vietnam was. And we were up on the trails up there, and there was... If you ran into something up there, it was battalions. It wasn't just little groups of uh, VC. It was battalions of NBA. And he was walking us up and down the trails, and we were fully loaded with packs. Everybody's carrying 60, 70 pounds at least. And we were doing 15, 20, 20 clicks, kilometers a day, which is a, and up and down these hills. They weren't, they weren't uh, super highways. And my guys were pissed off at this, and they're telling me, hey, LT, call me LT. 
you got to do something about this guy or we will, you know, <laughs> they weren't going to do that. But anyway, fortunately for us, we got hit by mortars one night and he got slightly wounded. He was wounded in the leg, but he couldn't walk. So they had to evacuate him. And they, the man they flew in to replace him, uh, Captain Yacoboni, he was a real good dude. He, he, were, he was, he knew what he was doing and he was very competent. So, uh, uh, so it got better after that. And, uh, my guys didn't complain about him. So I guess he was, he was okay, but it was, uh, it was it was a little odd. Well, the uh, the average age uh, for the Vietnam, uh, somebody in Vietnam was was nineteen, as opposed in World War Two was twenty three. So the difference between being twenty three and and uh, nineteen is quite a bit. I said I was older because I've been to college. There was only one other guy in the platoon who was older than I was. We called him Pops, and he was twenty seven. <laughs> so <laughs> he'd been in the carny for years. So they were all young guys and. Uh, but they were all hard charges. I mean, uh, maybe one third of them was draftees and, and two thirds were, were enlisted. But the, when they got into action, you, I had to hold them back. It was hard to hold them back. They became tigers. They wanted to, you know, they, they really wanted to do something that uh, that uh, sometimes it wasn't it wasn't a safe thing to do or the right thing to do. Uh, we took prisoners a couple of times, especially one time. And uh, they wanted they, they wanted to shoot the prisoners right down. I said, no, 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 we're not doing that. There's no operational necessity to do that. They may have information, and we got them back to the get them back to the rear. But they would their bloods up. They see friends of theirs get hurt. They wanted they want to do something. So uh, I had no problems with them, except for one guy, which is a long story. He he decided he was a conscientious objector, and he pissed everybody off. I'm not going to go into that now. That no, was, that's a long no. story. <laughs> well, you had a lot of support back in the states then. When 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 did you feel that the the political situation changed dramatically in the states? I, I was there. I wasn't involved. We weren't involved in, in the Cambodian thing uh, in May of 1970. But um, uh, but we were. I was there when that it was going on. And you notice that notice the change in the in the newspapers and everything, the stars and stripes. Even it was a the Cambodian thing. Because so yeah, I'm again. I was over there. I wasn't really involved with the with the with with, with what, you know watching the news or anything. But I know I know Nixon had to defend why he was going into Cambodia. And all that, I think that was a, that was kind of a change there, uh, at least in, in that I noticed, uh, May of nineteen seventy. So, I have one last question for you. In retrospect, you mentioned a third of the guys were draftees. Do you think yeah. the draft was good for the U.S. military and, and the United States in general? Bad? Should we well, have a draft today? Like everything is advantages and disadvantages. Uh, yeah, it gets people in there, and and, and it forces people to do something maybe they wouldn't, and which is good. You associate with all different kinds of people, and you learn things you wouldn't necessarily learn. But if a draft is two years, it takes a long time to train somebody to be a competent soldier. And the time you train him, he's just about ready to leave. So in that respect, uh, it's not a good thing. If you you just have somebody trained and and, and not active duty for a while, it's going to cost an awful lot of money to keep replacing these people back and forth. So it's kind of a cost cost benefit thing. It's good in a way, but uh, in a way it's not because you're you're just spending a lot of resources training people who are not going to be there very long. What about to the individuals? Do you think it was good? Do you think it was good for those guys? I think it would be a good thing to to force them to to do something. I said they would out of their out of their comfort zone. I mean you you get you you get the drill sergeants in your face. You're going to be a different person after that. 
no matter who you are. <laughs> no, I agree. I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me was is having that drill sergeant in your face. You never look at life yeah, quite quite the same after that, and you can deal with a lot more troubles. Exactly. For the individual, it's a good thing. But as far as you know, the cost to the to the military, it, it's really not a cost benefit. That's uh, a good thing for them. All right. Well, thank you, Paul Weiss, Vietnam War veteran, former president of Civil War Roundtable. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Okay. Always a veteran. Okay. Thank you. All right. Okay. Take care, Paul. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is Dick Morris. And about two and a half years ago, he came on the show and he told us how Donald Trump could beat Hillary Clinton and nobody believed him. But we know history. Now he's got a book out, (laughs) Fifty Shades of Politics. Welcome to Connors Corner again. Hey, good to be here. Good to be here. You know, the reason I was right about Trump is that 
I saw in the polling something nobody else paid attention to. The pollster, and I write about this in Fifty Shades of Politics, which is a series of anecdotes from my career. All the other polling organizations focus on where how are blacks voting, how are Hispanics voting, how are single women voting, how are gays voting. And what I looked at was how are white high school educated people voting, particularly men. And they're totally overlooked in our society. You know, there's no affirmative action program for them. And nobody pays attention to them and nobody ran any separate breakout of their numbers. They tell you how men and women are voting. They tell you how college and high school people are voting, how whites and blacks are voting, but not how white high school men are voting. 17% of the country, but you couldn't tell. And I saw that they were going for Trump heavily. And as the election approached, he won them by more and more and more. And he eventually won them by 45 points. And when I saw that, I said, hey, he's going to win the election. He's going to carry a lot of states. Nobody thinks he's going to carry because he discovered this group in America. And the elites just didn't know about it. Uh, actually, Mike, let me tell you a funny story. Um, also in the book, when I was working for Clinton, I told them while the shut the government shutdown is going on and in the aftermath of it, while you're fighting over the budget, you got to do paid political advertising around the country explaining your point of view because the media is not covering it right. They're saying you're fighting all the cuts and you're not. You're willing to do some cuts, but not others. And you think that's enough to balance the budget. And it turned out to be enough. So he said, yeah, but if I advertise, people will think I'm desperate it's a year and a half before the election. I said, you are desperate. You're 30, you're 27 points behind. And then he said, yeah, but they won't give me any money. if They think I'm desperate. So I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we advertise, but keep it secret? He said, secret. And I said, yeah. And he said, how much are you going to spend? I said, 10 million bucks a week, but nobody will know you're spending it. He said, how are you going to do that? And I said, we won't advertise in New York or L.A. or Washington. And no reporter will know you're on because they all <laughs> live there. They won't ever see your ads and they'll never write about it. We'll be on in 90 percent of the country and these morons won't know that you're doing it. And that is precisely and exactly what happened. It wasn't until after the inauguration that I wrote a book that explained how we did it. And then everybody began to flip out and say, where did you get the money? And that led to the Chinese funding scandal and all that. But that shows how insular and elitist the media is. They all live in those three cities. It's a very good point. Now, you started as a Democrat. Now you're a Republican. Why? Yeah, it, the transition was gradual. Uh, first, I would, one of these things I say is the shades of politics, 50 shades. I started as blue Democrat. Then I became kind of purple bipartisan when I worked for Clinton and then finally read Republican. The key thing was that I saw how every one of the goals that I had, one of the things that I wanted to achieve substantively, could best be achieved the conservative way, not the liberal way. So, for example, I wanted to end the threat of nuclear weapons, and I was a real peacenik and peace marches and tear gas and all that. And I opposed everything Ronald Reagan did. Tough, no, don't too tough with Russia, no arms control treaties, supporting Star Wars. Reagan did everything I didn't want, and then it worked. <laughs> Russia dropped dead, and there was no threat of a nuclear war. 
by the same token, I uh, wanted very much to uh, reduce poverty. And then welfare reform came along and said, we'll give you welfare, but you have to work. And all of a sudden, the welfare rolls fell by half and child poverty dropped by a third. And I realized that sometimes the direct ways the left wants to do stuff are not nearly as effective as the more indirect ways that conservatives do. And it really led to a conversion. And one of the guys I took along on that conversion, Mike, was Bill Clinton. Um, we would hang out in the kitchen at the governor's mansion after uh, at the end of the day, and we would just chat about politics. And he was feeling that all of these programs, giveaways by Jimmy Carter, weren't doing anything to fight poverty. They were just enriching the bureaucrats and the poverty workers. And um, But they didn't like what Reagan did of not spending any money on it. So we hit on the idea that we called the New Covenant, um, which was ironically not realizing its religious connotation at the time, but which was to get make people take responsibility in return for getting benefits. And that was kind of a halfway house on the way to becoming a Republican for me. Now, how'd you first meet Bill Clinton? How'd you get hooked up with him? Well, uh, I went around and I saw him because... He was the attorney general and he wanted to be governor. And uh, I flew out to Little Rock and I met him. And we had this 15-minute meeting that lasted three hours. And he was just in love with the idea of using polling to win elections, not just to ask who's ahead and who's behind, but to actually run the campaigns and the polls and see what happened. It's an idea that I got from Hollywood. He used to poll for movies. Um what should be in Jaws, what should be in uh, Superman, what should be in Rocky, you know, the two, three, and four versions of them. So I thought we'd apply that to politics, and it was very effective. But I'll tell you, after I finished my first meeting with him, I went to the bathroom. He showed me his bathroom in the attorney general's office. And I closed the door, and there on the inside of the door was a floor-to-ceiling pinup of a blonde spilling out of a tiny white bikini. I said, do you think this is okay for the attorney general's office? This is Arkansas. It's the Bible Belt. He said, don't you know who that is? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, that's Dolly Parton. And I said, who? And he Uh, said, oh, man, you really are from New York. How how did you manage things back then? I mean, because you were the guys who who got him through all the scandals, all the bad coverage. And how how did you manage to do it? Well, um, we would worked very hard at distracting people when new revelations came out. Uh, For example, there was a book that came out in March of 1995 that details how he would send state troopers to pick up women for him. And um, we we didn't want there'd be much news coverage of the book because we didn't want many people to read it. So um, we were sitting around trying to figure that out. And I said to him, why don't you settle the baseball strike? There was a baseball strike going on then. It was March, and the season was about to start. And you remember the previous year, the season was uh, ended in eight, in August. And um, now they were going to pick up the strike. So he called the teams in and the players' reps in, and he got them to settle the strike. He made clear that he would invoke the antitrust laws and exempt baseball from antitrust. And that scared the hell out of the owners. And they caved, and we settled the strike. and baseball proceeded. The whole purpose of that was to make sure that there was no coverage of the damn book 
<laughs> and there wasn't. <laughs> Once I um, was talking to a woman who worked for him in 1988, and uh, he was telling her that he didn't run for president because of these stories about him and women. And he said, I don't know these women. I don't do this. This isn't the kind of thing I do. This is just Republican stuff put out there to try to besmirch me. And the girl came home to my friend Betsy, who was his chief of staff, who was her roommate. And she said, you know, he was so strong and so assertive, so insistent that he was right, that midway I got the impression he had forgotten that we'd slept together. (laughs) Did he believe his own stories? Yeah, he did. He would absolutely literally convince himself that this was true. And you'd swear that it was true. You'd swear that he believed it was true, but it was not true. And I wrote, I write in the book that I realized midway that every single scandal this guy went through could be directly traced to Hillary. And that included the sex scandals. Paula Jones, for example, was willing to settle her lawsuit for no apology, no money, no admission of guilt. But Hillary wouldn't let Bill do it because he would have had to concede that a state trooper had brought her to his room rather than she went on her own. And I said, Hillary, he's governor. This is a state employee. There could be a thousand reasons that he asked her to visit the room. And she said, nope, it'll confirm that story. We're not settling. And because she was so rigid and so stick in the mud about it, we had the Monica Lewinsky thing. He never would have been asked in a deposition if there weren't the Paula Jones suit. Uh, he lost his law license. He was impeached. He um, had to pay a million-dollar fine, all because she was so rigid. And as I realized, she just has a tin ear and no, no innate sense of ethics. What do you think? I mean, I've, you're answering the question, but what do you, how do you think she would have been as a president? I think she would have gotten into scandal after scandal just like she did as a candidate. I mean, for God's sake, she she, uh, writes a book and goes on a tour, and all of a sudden the only thing people can think about is speaking fees and her pay-for-play at the Clinton Foundation, where she kind of sells access to the Secretary of State in return for speaking fees to Bill. That marriage basically became a RICO, you know, racketeering organization, where he would give the speeches, he would collect the money, and she would do the favors. By the way, I want to note for you, Mike, that this book, Fifty Shades of Politics, is not in bookstores. It's a self-published book, so you have to go to Amazon.com to get it. Okay, Amazon.com. Your political career doesn't just – it's not just centered on the United States. You've been involved in politics all over the world. Yep. Um, I worked uh, very hard in Eastern Europe. I worked in Russia against Putin. I described in the book what it's like to work in Kenya when you're juggling tribal loyalties. One of the races I did was for Vicente Fox, who was the first president of Mexico, who was democratically elected in 2000, ended 70 years of virtual dictatorship by the PRI, the other party. And in that campaign, everybody said, Vicente, they're all going to want to vote for you, but then they'll get bribes and they'll all vote for the other party. And in fact, there was a photo in the Times of a pre-governor with washing machines stacked three high that he was going to distribute to people in return for their votes. So we want to send a message to people, take the bribe, 
but don't vote for them. <laughs> so we did an ad when we had a poor couple in a rural, built rural home. And there's a knock at the door, and that woman says, See? And the guy says, Senora, I am from the pre, the other party. And she and he says, Who are you voting for? And she steps out, closes the door behind her, and says, Oh, always like the pre. And he says, Oh, boy, no. And he gives her a big basket of food. And as he drives away, she's waving to him and she slips back into the house and starts eating the meal. And her husband said, Why did you say we're voting for the police? We're voting for Vicente Fox in the pan. She's eating the food and she says, You know, for 71 years, they cheated me. Now I'm cheating them. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Judge Kavanaugh, you had some information about Christine Blasey Ford. What was yeah. that? Well, when he was going through the confirmation here, um, they didn't have anything that really showed what a liar and con artist Christy, Ford, uh, Christy Beasley Ford was. And I got an email from a guy I vaguely knew who I'd worked with who said, I have a friend who has a friend who was Christine's lover throughout the 1990s, lived with her on and off. And he has a lot of stories that you might want to use. So I called him, and he he said this woman's a piece of work and all kinds of stuff. But then he said he told me that she had coached a friend of hers on how to pass a lie detector test. The friend was applying for a job to the FBI and was scared of the question she'd be asked at the lie detector test. And Christine Beasley Ford, who's whose doctoral dissertation was on self-hypnosis and using that to scam polygraph tests. And her big claim here was that she had passed the polygraph, that everything she said about Kavanaugh was true. So when I heard that, I called Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who was my client, and uh, told him about it. And he called Grassley, who was chairman of the committee, and he sent it over to the FBI and uh, you may have remembered that during the hearing for Kavanaugh, uh, the, uh, the prosecuting attorney they hired asked uh, Beasley Ford if she had ever coached anyone to pass a polygraph test, and she denied it. Uh, but then they dug up, they spoke to the guy, they brought him in, he testified to the committee, and it was evident that she was lying. And that was a key factor, I think, in his being rejected, being approved and her allegations being rejected. Now, you were a person who, who crossed both sides of the aisle. Why do you think virtually no Democrats, or at least they pretended not to believe Judge Kavanaugh? Well, I think the Democratic Party has become certifiably insane. I mean, you know, I, I was a Democrat. And if there was still such a thing as a conservative Democrat, I would be, too. They never for a minute seriously considered that Kavanaugh was a sexual abuser. They may have convinced themselves of that, but what they would have, they would oppose him, anybody, simply because they were worried that he was going to vote against Roe v. Wade. And um, they would dig up anything they could on him, just like they tried to torpedo Clarence Thomas. And it's completely disingenuous. It has nothing to do with the substance of it. And in fact, this woman, Beasley Ford, um, had a beach house in uh, Rehoboth, Delaware, where she was lived right next to one of the lawyers in the boys' firm, the Democratic law firm that defended Gore and Bush v. Gore. And he, he was part of setting her up to give this testimony to try to get rid of Kavanaugh. And um, 
the ends justified the means for them. Dick Morris, I think you've given our listeners more than enough reasons to get your book. I, I guess there are a lot of stories in there that we'd like to, to read about. I have some other funny stories. Well, one of the stories, I'll tell you briefly, is how Bill Clinton tackled me and threatened to punch me. Um, it was a big change in our relationship. In May of 1990, he was running for the final term as governor, and his opponent was sneaking up on him, and Bill was really freaked. And he was yelling at me that I was throwing the race deliberately, that I had become more of a Republican and he couldn't trust me anymore. And I, he cursed at me and I stormed out of the governor's mansion and yelled over my shoulder, OK, I quit. You lose this race on your own. <laughs> and he stormed after me, tackled me, threw me to the ground and knelt over me with his fist back to punch me. And Hillary grabbed his arm, pulled him away said, Bill, Bill, stop, stop, Bill. Think of what you're doing, Bill. And he jumped up and I jumped up and stormed out of the place. And she put her arm around me and walked me around the grounds of the mansion for about 15 minutes saying, Dick, Dick, he, he cares about you. He needs you. He loves you. Don't let this get between you. He was just tense and upset. And then she said the lines I'll always remember. And you're free to interpret as you wish. He only does this to people he loves. <laughs> so this is characteristic of his personality? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Something once we learned. With Hillary and once I met with Hillary and Bill was left handed and the whole right side of her face was black and blue. And um she had sunglasses on, but she could still see it. And I checked and she had not had a face left. It got there some other reason. All right, well. I guess enough said on that point. So go to Amazon.com and get it. Fifty Shades of Politics. It's an easy read. It's a hundred two-page stories, okay. uh, bite-sized stories. I think you'll love it. Fifty Shades of Politics, Amazon. Dick Morris, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you, Mike. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, Connors & Sullivan Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the UN published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. 
Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Dick Morris, I, I was a little surprised at the interview. I think I learned more than I expected to learn through his story. Maybe sometimes more you want to know. Right, Oh, my right. goodness. But in any event, let, you know, go out there and pick up Fifty Shades of Politics, because I, if the book is anything like the interview, it's going to be a good read. Very good reach. And it's good for me. It's short. That it's it's not what what a hundred and twenty something pages. Right. And there how many little chapters are there? And it's all these different little vignettes, all these different stories. That's great for even if you're on the subway or something, just take it along and read something as you can. And I didn't realize that uh, Bill Clinton was physically abusive to Hillary Clinton. I had heard rumors, you know, he wasn't nice he wasn't nice to the women that he um went after yeah but so. i just thought hillary would pay him back so heavily that it wouldn't he wouldn't have the, the guts to do it My, you know maybe there's a weird kind of love there they've just put up with each other nobody's perfect all right so again if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law check us out on facebook facebook com. want to help me here come in if you have any email questions go ahead if you have any email questions chris where do they get us oh it's easy by the way the facebook page is ask the lawyer with mike connors uh you can go with the email ask mike connors at gmail.com all right we'll see you next week now we may have a change in schedule coming up so be be alert be alert be on at this time at six o'clock on saturdays eight o'clock on sundays i'm sorry eight o'clock on saturdays in the morning Uh, in a couple of weeks we'll be switching to 11 o'clock on sunday mornings we love you guys bye-bye we are gathered here on hallowed ground voices raised heads bowed down we're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away we are gathered we are gathered here on hallowed ground voices raised heads bowed down we're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.